My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. BC, humans settled along the Nile River for the first time. 3,800 years later, Ahamenes united Upper and Lower Egypt. The dynasties of Pharaonic Egypt then reigned for over 3,000 years until a 25-year-old man from Macedon blazed an unprecedented path of conquest, creating one of the largest empires the world had yet seen. In the process, opening Egypt to northern and eastern influences. Since then, Egypt has been colonized by the Greeks, the Romans, and finally the Arabs. Despite that, Egyptian culture has remained an immortal influence, retaining its cultural heritage and identity as deathless as the pyramids. Here to help sort out the varied enigmas of Egypt is a man enigmatically known as Doc Inferno, who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss Egypt, the curse of Ham, so much more. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Doc Inferno. In Egypt, they were laid out and to replicate what the beginning of the world was to, to the ancient Egyptians. From the sort of watery darkness, there was something called the primordial mound, the stone, which gave rise, of course, to the obelisk and to the other sort of monuments, maybe even where the pyramids came from, but it was from the primordial mound. And every time, this is why Egyptians did not allow foreigners in their temple, because they thought foreigners were impure. And these different priests, they would take these idols on a daily basis, these statues. These statues were talking statues and the Egyptians could talk to them. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and with me today is a sought-after guest, someone who is making his first foray outside of the fantastic podcast that you should know and love. Him and I have done one, not just one, but two uh, podcasts together on Steven Snyder's The Farm Mach 2, so I am honored to have Doc Inferno here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to get into 
some fascinating stuff. We're going to be delving into the history of Egypt and everything in between. Seems like you, you've casted quite the the itinerary for us today, Doc. Welcome to the show. Why don't we get right into it? Do you want to tell folks a little bit about yourself before we get started with the information you have prepared? Well, first of all, Mark, it's an honor to be here. I want to say, and I don't take that lightly, it really is an honor to be here. And I'm glad to be making a guest appearance on your show. And like I said, I'm quite honored to be here and to express this subject and talk these things. And yes, my parents and probably my immediate family probably think I'm crazy. Well, I'm glad you (laughs) got that question out of the way. Well, you're in good company, audience members, and I'm sure of all experience that at some point or another but let us in on exactly because when we first podcasted we were talking about mostly at least in my mind hip-hop yeah rap and hip-hop and the nation of the five percenter five percenters yeah. yep and how that whole knowledge base the wisdom in that group kind of filtered through the hip-hop rap scene in the early eight or late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, that was a part of the music that really informed what I thought of the world, especially in terms of conspiracy and spirituality. So we definitely have a lot in common, my friend, but where do you, where did you start with this kind of research? I mean, share as much as you're willing. I know Doc Inferno isn't your real name, but, <laughs> but tell us a little about yourself. Well, basically I was really fascinated with ciphers antiquity and ancient civilizations and stuff that was encoded within everyday language and understanding the folkways of how these different cultures interact with reality and something like the five percenter like captivated me because like I've always been into like secrecy mysticism understanding how these things unfold and how they interact with communities and politics as well that's really what kind of led me to explore stuff like ancient Egypt Of course, the cliche that everybody goes in and talks about is they see the pyramids, they see the Sphinx. People want to see like the material of Egypt, but they don't want to delve in or get to know who the ancient Egyptians were and what their spirituality is and how that guided them to make just majestic and very impressive monuments. And that was my pathway into not only ancient Egypt, but also looking into stuff like the five percenters and the nation of Islam and stuff like that. So that led me, of course, to Egypt. I wanted to understand how Islam unfolded across the globe. I'm not an inheritor of Islam. I have a certain amount of respect for it. And I wanted to understand how this, these sort of mythos captivated people and how this, how they formed their worldview. And that's why I got into stuff like Egypt because ancient Egypt is like one of the first places where cryptography takes its place. It takes its introductory stage into the world. They were experts at encoding messages and puns and various different things within their, their artwork and their hieroglyphs. And also the de- deciphering of like hieroglyphs and ancient languages also led me to there as well. Cause like I said, I was captivated that people in such a, I should say in, a, in such a restricted conditions that people in the 5% and the nation of Islam kind of grew up in they are literally kind of the rose that grew from the concrete they were after series and series of oppression and of african americans they rose up and they developed devised something from the community and based within the community and something impressive enough so 
that's why I got into both the Nation of Islam and the Five Percenters and also to ancient Egypt. So I have a certain reverence for that and also Sufism as well, which I'm going to discuss. Wonderful. Now, I don't, I, maybe I didn't catch this, but what part of this amazing esoteric America did you grow up in? I had the misfortune of growing up in the Gunshine State, a.k.a. Florida. That's what we called it when we lived there in like Florida. We called it the Gunshine State. And so a lot of my interactions with people were very similar to a lot of to a lot of people. Despite myself being a European American, I had some I would say I had a lot of things in common also with, with African Americans and Hispanics and others because I grew up around them and like in their modality, you could say. So the gunshine state I would say is where I'm from. Right on. Yeah. Gunwaven New Haven is what they call the place that I'm from. So we, it seems like wherever you are, if people figure out how to get like a gun or murder reference mixed into the name of the town or the nickname. I think Raekwon referenced that, referenced that place. If I'm not, he said Big Ups, Connecticut or... Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I think that was that was a hook that was a sample that was used in a lot of songs I remember hearing. Maybe it came from Raekwon initially, but I, I wouldn't know because I, I only heard the sample, but it was like something to Connecticut East Coast etiquette, something like that. Yeah, yeah. We could wax think- on about wax and this hip hop rap culture for hours. We did that already. I mean, we did yeah. focus on the Chicago drill rap as well yeah. when we talked to Steven about that. So we, I want to link people over to those conversations. Today, I'm excited to get into this historical avenue of research That's, of yours. I mean, not that rap yeah. at this point, that type of no, rap no, no. is certainly history, but but yeah, I mean. Well, I understand. I understand. But well, yeah, let's, let's get into this. Let's get into the Nile. Let's take a trip back to the Nile. A lot of people have preconcepted preconceptions about how Egypt formed. And you've always read people like Baval and you've read the sort of Graham Hancock and all the different alternative researchers. Well, there's a little neglected site. There's actually two neglected sites in Egypt. One is called Napta Playa. The other one is called Kustal. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but Napta Playa or I should say Napta player, sorry, is important because if Africa, the African Sahara was not as dry as it is today, it was much more verdant. It was much more, there was water, there were streams. There's this just colossal amounts of artwork that's all over the cave, their paintings and whatever that leads all the way from the Sahara up to a area in Southern Egypt, almost on the Sudanese border called Napta Playa. And these Napta Playa are like the precursor of megalithic structures that you see in Europe. I don't know if they're contemporaneous to the megalithic structures in Europe, but I do know one thing is they align both with Cirrus and Orion. And they also have images and depictions of what people believe to be both the precursors to Het Haru, that is Hathor, one of the a lot of the main uh, one of the main deities in ancient Egypt, and also to Anpu or Anubis, right on the rock work on on the rock paintings on Napta Playa, and this precedes, of course, the pre dynastic period, the Naquada, the Bahdarian, the the Ma- Mahdi El Mahdi, and also the Fayum P 
period, other pre-dynastic time periods. This predates all of them, and it shows, like in later Egyptian sort of mythos, the admiration they had of the celestial cow, because that figures very prominently in ancient Egyptian mythos. So much so that there is the goddess Newt. The goddess Newt, and I'm sorry if I'm being a little kind of obscure here, but the goddess Newt outstretches her body, and she, of course, has a cattle hoof. She is also, she is overlaying both Shu and Geb, as Shu is, of course, the uh, the air, and Geb, of course, is the earth. And there is this, like, imagery of, like, cows and cattle culture and herding culture that seems to play very prominently in Egypt's mythos and their star lore as well. As I mentioned, of course, that they refer to the Cirrus star as Softet, which they, which is the brightest star in the sky, but also a star that they kind of honored. So, and let me just jump in real quick. So for folks just listening on the audio side of things, Napta Playa is, I guess you could call it like more rudimentary Stonehenge. Uh, These stones that it's hard to tell. I have a picture up for our video audience, but it's hard to tell how tall they are without someone standing next to them. I believe they're about like three, four feet tall. They're not that big of stones, but they're aligned celestially the same way Stonehenge is. And considering this was what, 7,000 BC, BC, that this was created. Now we have to imagine these people were clearly, and this is a trite statement, but these people were clearly more advanced than they have been given credit by the mainstream archaeologists. So, wow. Napta Playa for people just listening. Now, what makes these like stones kind of contentious is because the Egyptian authorities have neglected the site. And some people say it might be because of politics. Because maybe some of the people that run the Antiquities Authority in Egypt might not be descended of the ancient Egyptians. Which is a claim I'm going to get into, which I don't agree. I just want to say this for the record. Although I sympathize with a lot of Afrocentrics, I do not agree that the modern-day Egyptians are not descendants of the pharaohs. I actually think they are. I think regardless of how many people came in to Egypt over and over again, how many strata or layers that Egypt had that culturally enriched their country, I think the modern-day Egyptians pretty much are descendants of the ancient Egyptians. And there's a lot of things that tie them to the ancient Egyptians. But I do think they're, the sort of Africanness of Egypt has been neglected by a lot of researchers and scholars. You can say this maybe because of Orientalism or racism or something that we discussed off air called the Hamitic myth. The Hamitic myth, by the way, plays very prominently in pre-dynastic Egypt because it was believed by a lot of the early Egyptologists that the dynastic race, that these people couldn't possibly be people that were from the Nile or even Northern Africans. These people had to be um, invading people from Western Asia. They had to be from Mesopotamia. They could not be the people who founded the foundations of Egypt. But all the antecedents of Egypt is right there within the Baltheri, the Nakwada, Nabda Playa, even Kustal, uh, which is also another contentious subject as, as well. They all shore sort of a migration pattern to where Egyptians, some did migrate in from Western Asia, 
but a lot of them came from across maybe in the Nile and the Sahara and definitely within the now verdant northern Africa and the Sahara. And it was once more wet and moist and all the mythos is there, all the spiritual antecedents is there to show that this is probably where the ancient one component of the ancient Egyptians came from. Now, let me go further into the Hamitic myth and the dynastic race. Well, the Hamitic myth was probably first coined by a guy named Haning Speak. Haning Speak, which was this, I believe he was this Belgian or this, this explorer that came to Uganda originally. And he found, of course, people that didn't fit the stereotypical phenotype of Africans. He, they looked a little different than, let's just say, Bantus or Nilo-Saharas, Nilotic types. And he started devising these things about great white race coming into Africa, wherever they would find any kind of marvel or any kind of sophistication or complexity, they would say this, they would attribute this to some outside race. Believe it or not, they didn't just do this to ancient Egyptians. They did this to the Yoruba people in Western Africa. They did this to the Zulu in South Africa. They did this to various different African groups when they found a little bit more sophistication. Now, that's what I'm saying is the Hamitic myth is not just based on the Bible. It's not just based on the descendants or curse of Ham. It is also based upon the not scientific racist notions at the time, which was very present in the Egyptology and early Europe and, and led of a lot of preconceived like notions about the cultural tug of war and imperialism that comes with modern day Egypt. But anyway, that's we're seeing clearly, though, that pre-dynastic Egyptians probably were solidly African and probably some people in lower Egypt might have been more aligned with what was called the Natufians. The Natufians were like one of the original agriculturalists that spread across Western Asia into parts of, and I'm just saying this is like mainstream academia. This is not just something I'm making up or pulling out of nowhere. This is like stuff that's agreed upon. So what it seems is like there was a fusion and this kind of corresponds to pre-dynastic lore. And I don't know if you're familiar with a Egyptian historian named Manetho. Are you familiar with him, Mark? No. Well, Manetho is where we get most of our kings list from. That's where we get most of our chronology, which some people I'm sure on your show probably think the chronology of Egypt is wrong. It very well could be because Manetho says that there were like these different dynastic kings that just go back for ages they just go, they go back actually into like tens of thousands of years. And he talks about there being these descendants of Set and the descendants of Heru. The descendants of Set were from Upper Egypt. And Upper Egypt was mainly the mainstay of Set, believe it or not. Set, of course, would later go on in Egyptian lore to have a much more nefarious sort of reputation for killing Asar, Asar or Osiris and spreading his body all across. And of course, Heru, a.k.a. Horus, gets back at Set and castrates him. So there was this like conflict between Upper Egypt, which, by the way, is to the south, which talks about the direction of the Nile and not necessarily the geography of Egypt. And I'm, I forgive me if I'm retreading like common territory here, but I'm just trying to lay some grounds to for people that may be not acquainted with the foundations of Egypt. But there was this legend about these blacksmith kings from the south that founded around what is day in Egypt, Nikin. 
and El Cobb, which is El Cobb. And of course, this like even precedes like Menez or Narmer for when you see the Narmer palette. And like I said, the divide between Upper and Lower Egypt has always been there. There is, matter of fact, there is, there was a saying in Egyptian literature. There was a sta- there was a saying in I think the the Tale of Sinoe where he talks about can a marsh man in the Delta feel comfortable in Weni, which is modern day Aswan. And as the people from the Nile, they get the the gradient of the people get a little bit more African as you move down the Nile corridor. I'm not emphasizing that. I'm just saying that's a reality in modern day Egypt, and it is the truth. And well, and people have tried. Go ahead. And I think that's a result of the Mediterranean Sea and and the fact that for countless centuries people had been traveling around the mediterranean sea whereas people in africa that were not near the coast were pretty much just in africa that's Mm -hmm. my assumption that's not a fact but i would imagine that yeah there's far more cultural interchange of people and ideas and languages in a place like the mediterranean which shares you know the water the coastline with what 30 40 different distinct (laughs) cultures and probably many more as you go back down the timeline but yeah so uh, i think that's fairly established people the further the closer to the equator you get the darker people just happen to be well i'm just saying that's the way egypt is set up egypt is set up to where you could see somebody that is totally looking let's just say like a greek or an italian maybe in alexandria to someone that looks more like an eastern african Mm. in said right and those people in southern egypt they're called saidi that's that actually means southerner it's like their own distinct like culture and out of all the people in egypt that have, and this is why I contend that modern-day Egyptians have some claim to ancient Egypt, regardless. Excuse me, of what people say, is because they lived in isolation. They lived; these villages were just totally in isolation. There was like nobody interacting with these people, except for the occasional sort of Arab or Bedouin traveler and occasional Berber migra- migratory Berber tribe from northern Africa, from Morocco took the Fayum oasis like they have been doing historically, which, by the way, the Berbers themselves, the Amazigh, were, were depicted on Egyptian hieroglyphs on, on tombs. They were the Libyans. They were the ancient Libyans. And they, too, kind of came in two varieties, believe it or not. The, some of them were depicted as almost white-skinned with red hair. This is kind of strange, but there were those types of people on the tombs. And I'm, like I said, I'm not emphasizing that. It is actually there. They were called the, and there was the Tenehu. And the Tenehu were like more like Nubian types. They were more like Eastern African types that lived congruently to, I would say, the Nile. They lived close to the Nile, but they were considered the enemies of Egypt. They were kind of part of the nine bows and people that were traditionally the enemies of Egypt. And like I said, going back to Stahl, Quistal is important because it shows that there was a type of kingship. There was a type of kingdom that was parallel to Egypt developing in what is now today Sudan or AK Nubia or what they called themselves Taseti, the land of the bow. And it's now there's like people who say that this is the progenitor of Egypt. There's Egyptologists that contest this. I think a guy named Bruce, 
Williams. He was the guy who excavated this. Quite unfortunately, a lot of those excavation sites, I think, are now submerged and they're no longer accessible. But there's a lot of work up on on what they call Group A Nubians, which were contemporaneous to Egypt itself. And I think they were destroyed by Egypt. And let me just say this. A lot of Egyptologists, unfortunately, have tried to make the conflict between the people in Sudan and the people in Egypt uh, historically as being something racially tinged. And that's just not the, that goes along with what I said about the Hamitic myth. And they've tried to season Egypt with a lot of irrelevant sort of factoids and a lot of irrelevant modern day conceptions of the world on Egypt, superimpose them. Yes, there were enemies. Yes, there was some fierce battles between the two groups, but it didn't really conflate to any kind of ethnic division or ethnic kind of war like we know today. They were just enemies. They were just competitors. They were just people that traded along the same route. They shared some commonalities and they had some differences. As a matter of fact, what's interesting about Egypt is that all these groups that they hated all around, the people they called the nine bows, the people that were the enemies, the Asiatics, um, which were in Western Asia, by the way, which were, I think, Arabic and maybe the progenitors of modern-day Semitic speakers, they all integrated into Egypt with not much difficulty. There, there wasn't much difficulty in Egypt itself. But I'm sorry if I had to talk about this, but I feel like I need to talk about this because this is not covered in a lot of other programs. And I wanted to convey that this is a very sensitive subject. You hear people online just talking about it. You hear like modern day Egyptians and Afrocentrists arguing about what, whose heritage is Egypt? Whose heritage does it belong to? Does it belong to the modern day Egyptians? Does it belong to the world? Is it a part of black history? Which I would argue all those people have some claim to Egypt. If you do, if you consider like the Nubians to be black, then yes. And there are plenty like upper Egyptians that would, by America's definition, be considered so, to be fair, to be honest. And even Egyptologists have acknowledged this. But going back, I'm sorry if I got sidetracked there, but going back to Egypt, as Egypt, from its inception, from the Old Kingdom, it had plenty of invaders. And now, by the way, in the Old Kingdom, it's very kind of interesting that people try to break Egypt away from Africa, but there was a guy named Harkouf. Harkouf was a guy from Aswan. He actually made an inroads into the interior of Africa. He's like the one of the first explorers to ever explore the African continent way before Stanley or any of the other Europeans. He actually went deep into Central Africa. They had interactions with, with the small people there, the Pygmies, the Twa, I should say. And they considered to be the Twa people to be dancers of God. They actually reveled in them and they considered them part of their cosmos. Matter of fact, one of the uh, one of the guardian deities of Egypt is Bes or Bes, which is a protective sort of guardian deity deity that the commoners had in their house. And Khuf wrote about his exploits, of course. And yes, there was imperialism. Yes, they tried to subjugate their neighbors to the south and, of course, to Western Asia. This was a reality, of course, of an empire. Egypt was an empire. They did subjugate people. It wasn't a utopia. It wasn't romantic like many people make it out to be. In many ways, the more I dug in Egypt, the more disappointed I was that 
they were an advanced civilization and they were kind of guilty of, you know, many of the same things. I know this is not glamorous to many people, but they were guilty of many of the same stuff that we are guilty of today. But anyway, that was Harkuf. That was the old kingdom. Let me move to, let me move to the new kingdom. That after some unrest, there was the first intermediate period. The first intermediate period was plagued with all kinds of disturbances. As a matter of fact, this is there was a text in there called the Adamnations of Ipuwer, Ipuwar, Ipuwar, and this. In this text, excuse me, it talks about droughts. It talks about there was incursions from various different people into Egypt, that there was just a lot of unsettling and a lot of unrest within the land, and there was a lot of distress. And so now here's what's funny. Okay, here's what's funny. During the first intermediate period, there was like a, it was after the reign of Pepi the first, and there was like such a, kind of tumultuous time in Egypt's past. There actually was this text called by uh, Amenhet the first called the prophecies of Nefertiti. The prophecies of Nefertiti said that his mother, the mother of that would become the pharaoh of Sin- Sinwoset was actually from Taseti. And this is why I say despite the fact that the Nubians and Egyptians are not are kind of always at fuse with one another. They also share a kind of kinship. There's also a kind of acknowledgement to Egyptians that they those are also their cousins or their brothers, and they share this sort of kinship within Egypt proper. And they actually say in the the prophecies of Nefertiti that there will come a person from Taseti. His he said that his mother was from Taseti. And that they would unite Egypt, and they would bring back the greatness of Egypt from its from its very inception. And I find that kind of interesting that people try to divide the two regions, but it seems like there's quite a lot of interplay between the two regions. There's quite a lot of shared sort of commonality. Now, I won't talk very much about the other periods. I wanted to cover some very obscure portions of. Egyptian history. I will get more into their beliefs and talk more about some of the things about Egypt as I don't think is much explored and some of the commonalities they had they share with some of their neighbors and also with kind of the modern world. No, actually, let me get further into some of their history. So after the Middle Kingdom, you have a certain amount of prosperity and of course then you have the Hyksos. The Hyksos came to Egypt. The Hyksos, whoever they might be, they seem like they had some familiarity with the Delta region. They seem like they were very acquainted with the Delta region and they understood the Delta region very thoroughly and the, of course the theory about the Hyksos is that the Hyksos or might be akin to the ancient Hebrews, that's kind of a contested and hot subject, but it doesn't, I don't know if it's plausible to be quite honest with you, because it seems like the Hyksos introduced the chariots into Egypt, and they were more acquainted with horses, so I'm guessing they may have came more from the north. Would they have been Scythians, or I don't know, maybe precursors to Scythians? I'm thinking they more have been Scythians, and more people, I would say, from like the Iranian central asian 
territory as opposed, but it does seem a lot of their place names where they settled in Avaris does match a lot of the Western Semitic namesake. I think the Hebrews were probably more akin to, say, a Bedouin type of tribe called the Sasu. There were people in ancient Egypt called the Sasu, and the Sasu seemed to be more akin, I would say, to a Bedouin tribe, or and that was probably more of what the Hebrews were as opposed to the Hikiksos or the Hikuwaset, which is kind of means foreign princes. Now, what's interesting also is the Hikiksos had unity with the people to the south. And I want to emphasize this, that the people to the south, even in the modern day, are not uniform. The Nubians share a lot with the upper Egyptians and southern Egyptians. As a matter of fact, there's sometimes when you go to Aswan, they're almost in, undistinguishable from one another. Uh, matter of fact, Saidi and Nubians kind of look similar depending on where you go. And there's also Nubians that look more like Southern Sudanese. And that seems to be kind of what we saw on the artwork of Egypt. Uh, but there was various different kingdoms in South of Egypt. There was one called Kerma, which was this very complex sort of city-state that existed in Northern Sudan. And like I said, they were not uniform. So they formed an alliance with the Hyksos, with the Hikuwaset. And then forgive me if I'm mispronouncing these names, but, but it seems that they formed an alliance. They formed an alliance with one another. And they, they totally controlled parts. And it's showing through archaeological evidence. They totally controlled the southern portion of Egypt, all the way up to the Middle Egypt. They controlled it. They, along with the Hyksos, controlled Egypt to a time. So whatever kind of subjugation that the early Egyptians may have done to the people to the south, it seems like the people of the south eventually had a time to turn the tables on their Egyptian overseers. Let me also say that they too were victims of the Hamitic myth. And as a matter of fact, you can read a book called Nubia Corridor to Africa by William Yuledale Adams. This guy said that the Nubians were half now, this is his statements, not mine. Half Caucasoid and, of course, half African. And I'm like, I'm sitting here reading this and I'm like thinking to myself, this is like 1985 when this is published. This is the, the Hamitic myth is supposed to be off the table, but they even make the statement about modern day Nubians. And I just thought this was kind of a bizarre statement that you sometimes read when you're trying to investigate ancient history. You're bogged down by all these different sort of racial theories that you got to like really go through. And it's really prevalent, believe it or not, in early Egyptology up to, you'd be surprised how into the nineties people were writing these types of, these types of texts about both civilizations. So I'm reading there and I'm reading it. So they too have been victims of the Hamitic myth and of racial racist no. scientist. Go ahead. I'm seeing here something about the Hiskos being potentially altogether propaganda spread by the pharaohs because they were maybe being there was a certain coup going on and maybe the military was trying to during what rain during what rain was that well this article what does it say the pharaoh was uh... the article says it's not very specific on who let's see because i believe the people that ruled before them was amenhet and it was the middle kingdom it was Sinwarset it all the way the up Hiskos to Amenhet. The Hyksos dynasty ruled the Nile Delta until 1530 BC. That's the only. Oh, so that's correct. 
It's the only date this article gives. It's not exactly. Okay. Oh, let's see. Hold on. Well, like I said, there's a lot of people that contest who they were. And then it also says here that the Hiskos may have been responsible for the construction of the Sphinx. Is that something that you're aware of? What are your thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> it's funny they said that. My, my thoughts on that is that a lot of biblical archaeologists and people that are vested in this is not to throw shade at people that are Christians or whatever, or people that want biblical chronog- chronology, that want to match up and mesh uh-huh. up the Exodus with a lot of the biblical accounts. I think they are kind of desperate to try to find a lot of Western Asian influences in Egypt because uh, that matches a lot of their agenda. That's my opinion, though. Um, right. I don't know what evidence there is to I don't think anybody accepts that. Well, and this is, of course, coming from a website called thecosmicweb.com. So okay. not exactly a scientific journal, but we can't expect... It's, it's interesting. It's interesting, nevertheless, to uh, but we Not that we that. would expect the scientific journals to be honest in, in a different oh, sort of way, they're right? Not. So, they're yeah, not. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a lot of different interests. And this is the trouble with Egypt, and that's why I'm really grateful to have you on for this discussion, because Egypt is this incredibly the dense subject, the history, the culture, and every interaction that Egypt had with other cultures. I mean, you can go in so many different directions that you just end up spinning around in circles. And uh, yeah, I'm not surprised to to find you saying, oh, no, that's that's most likely Christian propaganda. Uh, not, I, not, not, not your words, shade. my words, not, but, but I know you're not trying to throw shade, but it's just, that's, I mean, that's something that's going to happen with a subject like this, where you have all these different quote unquote researchers who actually have ulterior motives. Ours on this show, hopefully is to just get a transparent assessment of what's going on with Egypt, but we've taken a tangent. So help us reel back in doc. Where, okay, where do we go I'm from here? Back in. So my, my, okay, speaking on that, though, I will actually speak on that, what you said. My objective in talking about this is talking about neglected areas in Egypt that I feel is like marred a lot of Egyptology and a lot of mainstream sort of research. It's not just that the pyramids are not dated correctly. It's not just that the Sphinx is old, older than what people say. It's also that there has been a political agenda when it comes to the forming of Egypt, the people that formed Egypt, and there's been a kind of concerted effort to place Egypt in a alternate view that obscures its sort of, I would say, African heritage and also obscures its sort of true foundations as being, which I do, I'm going to emphasize again, I take the stance that I believe the modern day people of Egypt, especially the Fela'in, especially the Coptic Christians, and especially even the Nubians probably have more claim to Egypt than anybody else, regardless of how much admixture they may have with foreigners or how many people have come and went throughout Egypt. I think they, they have the true claim and they also have the handiwork that, that, that demonstrates through their culture and through their kind of everyday folkways as opposed to other people. So they're not disconnected from their heritage, like people think, regardless of how many Greco-Roman, Arabic, Turkish, or whatever layers may have been on modern-day Egypt, they are very much assigned and consigned to their culture. And that's why I'm going over some of the mistruths that 
and trying to do it like in a historical and chronological pattern that is somewhat conventional because I don't want to get too off the far beaten path to confuse people because you can, like you said, it's a very vast subject and you can spend days looking into it. But that's why I wanted to discuss this and come on your show and discuss this. And that's why I kind of got to the Hyksos because I'm kind of following a pattern here. So regardless of whoever the Hyksos were, from the Egyptians writing and from their own writing, they didn't find, and it could be propaganda, it could could be court propaganda because, like I said, we had people who not only alter Egypt's history, but, I mean, it's not really on a solid foundation. You have really different fragments and texts that don't really give us a concise view on Egypt's history. So we have to, like, take Manetho's word. We have to take stuff like the Palermo Stone. We have to take the Torrens Kings List. We have to take these various different sort of fragments that are just allotted to us from searching and excavating across Egypt. So it's not as it's not as solid as people would have you believe. It's a lot of conjecture about Egypt's history and a lot of things have been set in place that are probably wrong. But from what text we have about the Hyksos and from their writings, it does appear that the Egyptians didn't find them very pleasant. They found them rather a foreigner. They didn't think they were like Egyptian. By the way, I want to say this. Egyptians were kind of chauvinistic when it comes about their, when it came to their sort of their, their notion of who Egyptian was, even though there were people who assimilated into their society, they were foreigners. They had this conception, which I'm pretty sure you've heard of Ma'at. Ma'at meant justice and order and balance. And they had this other thing called Tfret was chaos. And it was associated with the desert. And like I mentioned previously, when I mentioned the nine bows, that's associated with like foreigners. That's associated with people to the south, to the west, and to the east of them. They saw those people as hostile interlopers, and they didn't like being ruled over by them. So what eventually happens is there's a bloody war that starts in southern Egypt, and there's the mummified remains of a guy named Sequene Tao, I'm probably mispronouncing that, that name, forgive me, but he was a upper Egyptian le- leader, I think the father of Ahmozi. Ahmozi defeat kind of is leads the insurrection against the Hyksos, drives them out, drives them back into Western Asia or Central Asia or wherever they came. And eventually I think his like first his first son, Amenhotep, gives rise to the eighteenth dynasty the seventeenth and eighteenth dynasty which is considered to be one of the golden eras of Egypt. It's where Egypt basically ruled almost the entire known world. It's where a lot of their accomplishments and higher achievements. And that brings us to the very controversial Akhenat, which I'm pretty sure you're familiar with, which many of your listeners are familiar with. Yes. And AKA Amenhotep the, the fourth. Now what's interesting about him is that, there is some allegations that his mother, Queen Tai, may have been uh, a princess. Uh, she may have been like from Western Asia. She may have um, married Amenhotep the, the third. And by the way, the, the Egyptians were known for having concubines from all across Western Asia and all across the world. But they would never allow one of their women to ever be uh, taken by other people. 
like they were very restrictive. And they say this in the Telemarna letters, give us, they told the Hittite king, give us all your, your princess and your daughters, but we're not going to give you any of our daughters or our princesses in return. So they were very kind of possessive about their, their females, which by the way, just to emphasize something is that women in ancient Egypt, although they didn't have much authority and sometimes like headship shoot, they had to trick people to become rulers. They still had rights when it came to land property and even later times kind of deciding if they got a divorce. So the Egyptians for the time were kind of progressive, make what you will of that, but they, they kind of had a progressive notion of females, but they were very possessive of their females. They didn't want other people to have their females, but they wanted other people's females, of course. And that's probably was the mother of Akhenaten, AKA Amenhotep the fourth. Now what's not often discussed is during this time, during the Amarna period, they're into the Egyptian cosmogony. And by the way, I should mention that the Egyptian cosmo- cosmogony or cosmology, it ranged from different parts of Egypt. There was the Memphite sort of cosmology. There was the there was different com- cosmologies for depending on what gnomes. Egypt was divided into gnomes, and gnomes were these different provinces in Egypt proper which had their own distinct, I would say, regional flavor to them, kind of like different states in America have their own sort of regional flavor. So who might be in charge in Memphis or Minefer would be different from than somebody that was in charge of Hermopolis or Luxor, a.k.a. Waset or Aswan or Swinney. They would have different, different time of creation myths, but I'll get into that later. Now, the reason why that's important is because Akhenaten himself, he changed and rearranged the cosmology, not only in the manner that people think it is, he placed Tid with Amun. He also, there was this new deity called Shed that had this sort of transcendent qualities to where it almost seems if it is a precursor, let's just say to Christ. Because this figure, while it didn't have like divine sort of a salvation like Christ, it could actually go into the underworld and it could save people from the underworld. This was impermissible in like Egyptian lore. Like the underworld was like this untamable, treacherous place to where you could lose your soul if you didn't have the right passwords or know the right words or know sort of the secrets to get by these different gates. But during the time of the reign of Akhenaten, there appears to be like this sort of like weird deity called Shed. That's S-E-D, Shed. And it was this figure that just appeared out of nowhere. And no, I've never heard anybody, very few people discuss this in Egyptology. There, there are a few people that discuss this, that talk about this sort of figure, but it does seem to be the forebearer of, let's just say, any kind of Christ-like figure, even back or messianic figure. And, there's even some people that believe that Akhenaten himself was a progenitors and gave rise to the Hebrews and to the people of the 12 tribes. That's never really been proven. And that's something that Sigmund Freud actually believed in. Sigmund Freud and like his writings about Moses and monotheism actually kind of believed that Akhenaten was the precursor to the 12 tribes of Israel. And that hasn't really been proven, but it's definitely something that I think people should 
consider there's a lot of similarities between the two cultures. There's a lot of things that the two cultures share and interchangeably. I mean, even down to magic, even down to magical texts in the Talmud and even in the Torah itself, they have certain Egyptian flavor and certain Egyptian sort of magic. And I'm not just talking about the incident where Moses turns the snake, the staff into it, a snake. I'm talking about literally there are like certain practices that does seem to bear resemblance in the Talmud and to that of ancient Egypt. And even like some sort of theological concepts, which are very common and well, everyone emphasizes that the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians gave a lot to Israel, gave a lot to the Hebrews, but they don't ever, they don't ever mention people like Akhenaten or that Egypt. And the Hebrews spent a lot of time in Egypt. The P or people that we may be the Hebrews spent a lot of time in Egypt. There was a almost a shared culture. Egypt extended all the way to Biblos, what is in Lebanon into the Levant, they shared so much commonality there in the Delta with that region. But yet there was some hostility there between the two people. So what's your opinion on Akhenaten, Mark? Well, all I've heard about Akhenaten is what you just said. And yeah, I mean, there's the whole ancient aliens thing about him potentially being an alien. But and if I'm not mistaken, he was the guy who brought theocracy into the world for the first time. Well, monotheism. Monotheism, that's what I meant. <clears throat> and, that, and that's also another interesting foray into Egypt is they often don't want to credit Egypt with any kind of notion about monotheism. They want to say that the Egyptians believed in something called monolatry. Monolatry meaning that they, they were... Or henotheism is another thing that they claim the Egyptians were into. That is saying that the Egyptians worshipped, they may have held one central god like Ra or Amun or Kanum or Atum as being like the divine, uh, but they never, they still worshipped multiple different gods. They just saw these multiple different gods as a manifestation uh, of the one, of the one god. And uh, like how I would say Zoroastrianism sees sort of angels or certain beings as like the expression of Zoroaster, but they don't want to ever acknowledge that Egypt had any kind of concept of monotheism. As a matter of fact, I've read in some like Egyptological texts that they don't even want to acknowledge some of the more stricter people. They don't want to acknowledge that Egypt had a concept of the afterlife. And yes, Mark. I didn't. I didn't speak up. Go ahead. Okay, sorry, my bad. But they even they don't even want to acknowledge that Egyptians had a concept of the afterlife, or they had these notions. They want to say that this is totally within the domain of Judeo Christians. They want to say that Christians are the only people that conceived a notion of sort of an afterlife and. The Egyptians, what they had of an act doesn't really count as an afterlife. I mean, that's if you talk to the stuffy Egypt, the Egyptologist, which they won't acknowledge Egypt has done a lot of things, which is why I lament a lot of mainstream Egyptology when we were talking about is it is a problem because a lot of people see 
the research of Egypt as a strict domain of blue bloods of the aristocracy. And people that are commoners, including Egyptians themselves, shouldn't have any claim to Egypt or the study of Egypt. I've had people tell me this that I've consulted. They've told me that, well, the native Egyptians shouldn't be held, shouldn't be in charge of their antiquities because there was so much tomb robbery because they destroyed their artifacts. <laughs> and this is a problem because Europeans came into Egypt and preserved all the artifacts. And they, they this is literally what people told me. And I was like, this is quite contrasting to what I have learned from interacting with Egyptians myself. And by the way, the reason, another reason why I really took an interest in best nation into Egypt was that I actually spent some time there early on in my like early 20s. I went there because I was aspiring to be an anthropologist. I wanted to study not only ancient Egypt, but I wanted to understand who were the descendants of these great people. And I discovered a lot of a lot of stuff that a Westerner doesn't. And by the way, this was probably around the time of, I would say, the Arab Spring. It was around this time. It was around like the time of the Arab Spring or maybe a little bit afterwards. And it was a very difficult time in Egypt. In Egypt. And I just discovered so many things. They were The people in Egypt were hospitable and they just took me in. I lived with them for a little while and I had the chance to witness a lot of their ritualistic ceremonies that still occur. There's this, as a matter of fact, getting, I'm moving more closer into like modern day Egypt and saying some of the commonalities. They had this like one particular festival, or I should say ritual, that sort of resembled in many ways, I would say, or some something called the Bore that the Hausa and Northern Nigeria practice. Well, what would happen is like, you would go into this, this, these rooms where the Kodea, which was this female, and all the rest of these females, they would gather around and they would beat these tambourines, of course, but ever doing, engaging in this ritual, of course, they would draw a circle for protection. They would draw a circle for protection because the Zaire is a dissociative type of spiritual dance, or you could say like ritual, to where it's believed that a spirit jumps into somebody possesses them, makes them gyrate, of course, and just rides them like that. And this is, this is ritually performed by people. And in modern day Egypt, they still have not lost their enchantment. They are still much, very much in commune with, with the spirit world. The spirit world just emanates just everything about their entire existence. The, that is the rural Egyptians and the lower class Egyptians. For the people that are called the Baladi, which is an archaic term, but they used to use these terms to try to differentiate the Baladi from the Afrangi, which was the French, the term for the French or the term that was used by the, uh, the Egyptians to differentiate between native Egyptians and who people who either act like foreigners, who were foreigners themselves. But there's this entire subculture that exists within Egypt that you hear, you see on many anthropological monographs, but you don't really, people don't really conceptualize. Now, I don't know if the Zayar, which actually means in Arabic, to throw down, meaning it's talking about the bodies gyrating within the circle and the spirit position and the writing. I don't know whether this comes from Egypt or whether this 
comes from, I would say, sub-Saharan slaves that were very unfortunately transported to Egypt during the, sorry, 1700s and 1800s by the Ottoman Turks, or maybe even earlier. It does seem to share a lot of commonalities with people of the Sudan, which people of Ethiopia, they seem to have these types of, these types of spirits that they, they often communicate with and these spirits jump inside of them and possess them. However, there is some very interesting text from Egypt that talks about spirit possession. And spirit possession is definitely something that was not alien to the ancient Egyptians understood it somewhat. The spirits would come to ancient Egypt even deities, even dead people would come to ancient Egypt in dreams. They would come to them in, in their everyday life and interfere with their everyday life. The, they weren't always aware of it. So this is, not, this is not foreign or alien to Egyptians, which very much were kind of in unison and in harmony, we could say, with death. They certainly didn't worship death. They certainly integrated sort of life and the afterlife together. And they saw this as like one continuous sort of circle and this just continuation. But anyway, going back to the czar is that it was quite a sight for me to see about this ritual that I believed could go back to the pharaohs, could possibly go back to the imported people into the Nile, but it still fascinated me. It's like, why didn't people talk about this? Why don't Egyptologists talk about these types of things or anthropologists? Why do they gloss over this? And there actually have been certain books written about, I was wondering about that. And this led me on a journey to look deeper, not only into Egypt's history, but to look deeper into the spoke tradition, which has like just unbroken sort of lineage. Does it have an unbroken lineage? Is it, is, am I just conferring a lot of this stuff or pushing, pulling a lot of this stuff together because I want the modern Egyptians to be descendants, sorry, of, of ancient Egypt? I don't know, but I definitely saw something there. I saw something that, saw something which, which was much more ancient than people gave it credit for. Now it would be if that's just the only, simply the only thing that is ties modern day Egyptians to ancient Egypt, but it's not. That's not the only folk custom that is that ties them to that. Now, you're probably asking yourself in the audience, how could this possibly be? I mean, I thought that the Greeks came to Egypt, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Romans came to Egypt, and there was an unbroken lineage between these sort of worlds. Well, that's actually where you would kind of be wrong about your conceptualization of Egypt. All these people did come to Egypt, but I don't know whether it was their administration or their rulership over Egypt, but they had kind of a, well, I would say, laissez-faire type of rulership with Egypt. They never really imposed a lot of their culture. They liked to integrate the, their culture with ancient Egypt. With, did you see the instance of making Alexander the Great sort of the pharaoh and fashioning him as under the appearance of a moon or doing stuff like combining a moon and Osor with Serapis in Alexandria. But they never really imposed their traditions onto the Egyptians. They just wanted them to pay whatever taxation. And this included like later Muslims too. They just wanted the Egyptians, the common Egyptians, they wanted to practice like just 
taxation. Now, you may also say that what the Egyptians are practicing are just, it's not high magic. And you'd be correct. The high spiritual, it wouldn't be high spirituality. It would be more of folk spirituality or common spirituality, which is attested to by the site called Del, which they found during the New Kingdom. They found this site of where the common people, they had these sort of shrines to people of like Imhotep, Emenhotepi, these various different like folk heroes that had developed in Egypt. They also had shrines to beasts. They had shrines to their ancestors. They had all these other things which, which they practiced, which set them kind of apart from the temple priests. The temple priests were sort of an elect group of people that had more of a, I would say they were more, arist- they have more of an aristocracy and more of a connection to the God and the temples themselves in Egypt, they were laid out and to replicate what the beginning of the world was to, to the ancient Egyptians from the sort of watery darkness. There was something called the primordial mound, the bin stone, which gave rise, of course, to the obelisk and to the other sort of monuments, maybe even where the pyramids came from, but it was from the primordial mound. And every time, this is why Egyptians did not allow foreigners in their temple, because they thought foreigners were impure. And these different priests, they would take these idols on a daily basis, these statues, which I think even Stephen from, um, from, from the farm said that basically he believed that these statues were talking statues and the Egyptians could talk to them. Well, it's kind of interesting that that's brought up is that a lot of your audience may find this interesting is that the lotus flower is believed to have kind of hallucinatory type of substances. It's believed that the, in the lotus, you often see the Egyptians with the lotus to their you know, to their face. And it's very potential also when they were burning the incense towards these deities, there was also these properties and in these incense. And so it's interesting, like I said, they considered this, the temple to be the creation, the Zeptepi, the first time. They also considered it to be part of Hika and Hika was the magic. So they didn't conceptualize magic or these notions like we conceptualize them today. We see them as like profane or as something kind of a parlor, parlor trick. The Egyptians thought that Hika, just like Ma'at, really radiated through everything in existence. And Hika was controlled, of course, by the voice. It was controlled by thoughts. It was controlled by that, the energy that came from the, the gods themselves, from Atum, from Ra from the different gods and was bestowed upon humanity. And that's one thing that sort of separates Egypt from the Abrahamic faiths is that Egypt did have a intermediary between them and their God. Their God was united with them and one with them. And in many cases, if Egyptians willed it, and during death and even in living, they could possibly become images of the God themselves. And like I said, the temple was a part of it. The temple was a part of creation and the priests were enacting creation on a daily basis. Now, what I'm trying to say with, follow me here, what I'm trying to say with this is that I believe the priests didn't just, they weren't 
I mean, yes, they were restrictive. They were cloistered away from like the populace, but I don't believe there was this division that Egyptologists make it out to be. I believe they had interactions with the people, at least in going back, they even acknowledged this to the Middle Kingdom. More people started to, more of the priests started interacting with common people. So when times came where Egypt was getting invaded, I think the priests probably went underground. The priests probably realized that the Romans and all these other people eventually are going to, they're going to subjugate me. They're going to destroy my temple. They're going to interfere and sever my ties with my gods and my traditions. And I have to go underground. And I, I think that's what happened during the Greco-Roman times, because there is one text called the Oracles, the Potter, the Oracle Potter, the Potter, sorry, the, uh, the Oracle of the Potter, which mentions around the time of the Seleucid sort of revolt in Syria, it demonstrates that there was an Egyptian priest and an Egyptian pharaoh that fled. He fled to other parts of Egypt to get away from the oppressive taxation that the, the Ptolemies were administering on Egypt. And I think this went underground, even with the Romans and later times with the, uh, with the Christianization of Egypt. I think the Egyptians either chose to synchronize their religion with Christianity, and we see this with Coptic Christianity. And I think in later times, even there were still some remnants and survivals of the Egyptian traditions with even like into Islamic times. And I don't know how true this is, but I don't believe the hieroglyphic writing totally just went out of existence. I don't think it went out of existence by a lot of the mainstream scholars say, I think it had some longevity because the cops, even like the Christianized cops and even like the people in Southern Egypt, they were very literate people. They had to be literate in order to devise a lot of these spells and to communicate with the gods and for their everyday, at least the priesthood was very uh, literate and they just didn't disappear out of nowhere. Even if there were decrees that said that people had to stop practicing their religion, they definitely continued and they synchronized those traditions together and they fled to further areas. Now here's where I have a little bit of a controversial view than other people. I believe the Egyptians and the Egyptian priests were familiar with places in Africa. I believe they took the route called the 40-day route. This is the Del Abiyan. This is the 40-day route to where this trade route existed. Now, this ties what I said about Farku. This ties and goes back all the way to, to where they used to travel this route into what is now Darfur, what is now the Sahara Desert. So they took that route and they went deeper into the interior of Africa and they found some commonality probably with the people there in the interior of Africa. And they probably took up with a lot of those people and they may have introduced some concepts. This is why when you look at Egyptian cosmology, you see a lot of similarities with traditions in Central Africa with the Yoruba in Western Africa, with some of the other practices that you see, you see in Africa. For instance, the whole pathway 
of the sun in Central Africa is very similar to Ra's journey across the sky and the tracing his, his patterns into the underworld into a nightly basis. There was this, there is this thing in, in Central Africa called the, called the Yawa, which is this type of cross that a lot of the enslaved Africans actually brought over here to America with them. It's the pathway of the sun. The sun is shown and the sun is revered and the sun is shown in a path to the underworld. The whole concept of the underworld, which I was very shocked, by the way, looking into this, I was kind of skeptical. I said, why are these things similar? So this is why I sympathize with some of the Afrocentric people. I don't think they've been given a fair shake, to be quite honest with you, because I do see a lot of commonalities with Egyptian lore and also with the Yoruba. And all these people in like Western Africa, they say that their ancestors came from to further west or further east. The Yoruba used to say maybe because the advent of Islam, they come from Mecca. And there's other people that they claim they're in Western Africa that claim their heritage to Persia. And so I maybe think this is like a conflation of maybe coming from the Nile. But that's just a conjecture on my part. That's just something on my part that I think is deserves like further research, which will probably never get any kind of elucidation on that subject because most people, it's highly polarized and no one's going to really talk about that kind of stuff. But that's why I say also when we were talking about the Dogon also claimed that their ancestors come from, from someplace else in Western Africa. Matter of fact, most people in Western Africa, which is odd, they place their origins and these are people that are not Christianized, by the way, are not Islamicized. The Yoruba, only up until the 1500s, were Christianized. These myths and legends that they have are much older than any tradition. But anyway, the priesthood, I think, also probably stayed in Egypt as well and went underground. And this leads us up to the Christian period. Now, what's interesting about the Christianization of Egypt is that already within the Egyptian understandings of the soul of Usar as being a kind of deity that promised them eternity as becoming one in union in the afterlife with Usar after being judged, you know, on a scale with the feather of Ma'at. They, Egyptians embraced Christianity with not a lot of problems. The problem, however, is that when a new group embraces Christianity, they be often become overzealous. So you had a monk, this is very interesting, you had a monk named Saint Shanuta, which in itself, a lot of the Coptic names, they bear evidence of ancient Egyptian, you know, origins, such as the name Bisa, Shanut, other names. Now, what's interesting is Shanut, Shanut going around in the 15th, in the 5th century, Okay, this is long after the priesthood is supposed to have existed. He talked about Egyptians still mummifying their dead, still revering their dead, still displaying their dead. And this was a common place in, in parts of other upper Egypt. He complained about this. He tried to explain to the Egyptians that there's no need to mummify your dead because of Christianity and because of the, the way Christianity promises a paradise in a new form of a body. You don't need to mummify your dead. But Egyptians themselves thought this was a very important concept. And still to this day, 
in Upper Egypt, you have these icoptic icons that display the face of the people that are in the, the cemetery. And this is like a common practice amongst the cops. And let me address that also as well. Are you familiar with the Coptic Christians, Mark? Yeah. Well, are you aware that they claim to be the, the inheritors of ancient Egypt and the descendants of ancient Egypt? Are you aware of that claim? No. Well, that's kind of a misnomer. The cops, of course, is a term that comes from the term hikupata. It comes from the term that that was the name of Menefer or Memphis. Well, the cops themselves was just a term that when the, when the Arabs came into Egypt, after they overthrew the Byzantine, the Byzantines that ruled over Egypt, it was a general just term for Egyptians. In the modern era, it is used as a distinguisher between a distinguishing name for Egyptians and the Muslims and Christians, meaning that the cops hold this notion that they are like the descendants of the ancient Egyptians, which is probably true, but so were the, so are the Muslims. The Muslims, and this is like caused a lot of trouble because they are kind of a minority. They are a minority that a lot of the Muslims look down upon because they are radical Islamicists. This is not to offend anybody, but it is the truth that there's been a lot of divisions between the two. And a lot of, because they were Christians, they were forbidden to marry the Egyptian Muslims. So they think because of this, that this means that they are the purest descendants of the ancient Egyptians. They, of course, don't say that the cops also married and intermingled with Armenians and also intermingled with, with Greeks and other people from the Christian faith. But this is my misnomer. Like I said, it, all Egyptians were known as cops. Every single Egyptian was known as a Coptic. That's, like I said, a word that just means Egyptian. So up until I would say the 15, up until the 1200s in Egypt, most people were Christians. Most people are Christians. And what happened eventually, of course, the Jizya tax was opposed upon people and people started to convert because of the Jizya tax. Let me also say one thing else. I've seen floating around on the internet about displacement of the Egyptians and that there must have been some kind of population displacement. This is not the case. When the Arabs and other populations came into Egypt, they never completely displaced. They never massacred Egyptians. There never was any kind of wholesale sort of massacre or annihilation of Egyptians. There was some intermingling. There was some intermarriage, but there never was. They never really, and they nearly, and honestly, the foreigners never had any interest in displacing the Egyptians. They just rolled from a certain city center and most of the Egyptians were Fala'in in the Delta and Middle Egypt and into Upper Egypt. They, they pretty much went about their business. They went about going about their day and also still practicing their mode of life. So there wasn't a lot of interference from like foreigners, like a lot of people. So there wasn't any displacement because the numbers were never, were always of native Egyptians were always higher than any invader that came into Egypt just to let people know. And the first Arabs had a policy to where they wouldn't actually settle in parts of Egypt. They actually forbade it. The Caliph Umar actually forbade people from settling in both Said and also in the Delta. Eventually, however, towards the end of the Umayyad, 
And after many revolts later, they eventually started bringing certain Arab tribes and putting them into certain parts of Middle Egypt, and some of them migrated voluntarily. Now, what's interesting about this, okay, is that Arabs have been coming to Egypt since probably, I would say, the New Kingdom into like the into the late period Egypt. There, there are like like even during Roman times, there are evidence that there were like certain Bedouin tribes, southern Yemeni tribes that were settling in two parts of Egypt. So there were Arabs in, in, in ancient Egypt. Yes, not in large numbers, not in large concentrations, but the Egyptians most likely knew about Arabia. It was not, it was not foreign to the Arabs. And the Arabs during the Islamic period were actually familiar, may have been familiar with the ancient past of Egypt. Now, by that time in Islamic Egypt, all of the shine and glory of Egypt had faded away and withered away, but there still remained remnants of Egypt in the form of hermeticism, in the form of alchemy, in the form of certain amounts of mysticism. The Egyptians themselves really took to Islamic mysticism. They really took to alchemy. They really took to hermeticism. And the cops that I mentioned were really a repository of knowledge. There was like an alchemist by the name of Simos, Zosmus, that preceded a native Egyptian or possibly Nubian alchemist by the name of Dahu Min da, Dahu Nun al-Misri. And he was from a place called Akmen. And that is like in Middle Egypt. And of course, it's named after the deity Min. The deity Min, of course, was this deity that had an enormous penis and was like had an enormous phallus, which was kind of a fertility god. And that was the center place of, of a lot of hermetic traditions. Well, Daha, Dahel Nun al-Misri was a student of alchemy. He was a student of alchemy. And we don't know much about his origins. We really don't know much about him, period. But that a lot of the early Sufi mystics give Dahu al-Nun al-Masri credit for establishing the concept of gnosis in Sufism. They give him the notion of like gnosis and the different stations, such as purification, love, oneness, unification. That's very common in Sufism. They give him credit with that. And it's very easy to see how... Go ahead, Mark. You were going to say something? No. Oh, okay, okay. It's very easy to see how Dahu Nun al-Misri was definitely affiliated himself with, with Sufism and with the notion of Gnosis. This was definitely a center where Sufism and Hermeticism and alchemy was very popular in Egypt itself. This was like, like I mentioned about the cops. They, if anything, during the Islamic period, they were kind of stores of ancient knowledge. And matter of fact, this is exactly in Akhmen is where the Nag Hammadi library comes from. And we're seeing now that there are some like similar concepts, although most people refrain from giving the Egyptians credit 
from any notion of Gnosticism or Gnosticism, they don't give them much credit in that term. They say that the reason why Egyptians don't really are the forebears, not the forebears of Gnosticism is because they don't have a demiurgic quality to the religion, meaning they don't have a creator deity that sort of submerges humanity into a prison earth and puts them like, like in a different sort of dimension than heaven. And it's, they're trapped on this in the earth or in, in, in this reality. They say that Egyptians didn't devise that type of notion. They didn't devise this. But what is very interesting is that the concept of the Ouroboros, that is the snake that is eating his tail, come, might come from something called the Mehin. The Mehin snake is not only a type of snake that was around the Nile, but it also was this type of snake for when Roth went into the underworld, attached himself around Ra and circled his solar bark as he was going into the underworld and protecting him from, of course, the various different snakes and serpents and entities that were in the underworld. It also fastened itself to the enemies of Egypt. And it symbolized sort of the recurrence of Roth, the solar bark, and of the continuity of Egyptian religion itself. And this is what they believe, many believe to the Ouroboros. They have probably, the Mahan snake probably gave rise to the Ouroboros. And it also was a very sort of popular game in ancient Egypt. Mahan and Senate are both two, are two games that are found often in the tombs. And unlike in modern worlds, the games that, the games like Mahan and the games like Senate, they actually were kind of part of the Egyptian metaphysics. They're part of the, the Egyptians' narrative and their understanding of their their understanding of sort of the afterlife and the continuity, sort of their belief system. And that's why I find Egypt interesting is that it didn't have any kind of linear time progression, sort of Judeo-Christian religions. There's an apocalypse. There's this end time to where the people are judged and it's decided that these people go to heaven. The certain elect go to heaven. The Egyptians didn't have that. The Egyptians, as I mentioned previously, had simply this notion that you go through the underworld, you have to go through these trials, and through these trials, you eventually get to Usar and to Anpu, Anubis, and your soul is weighed on the scale. If your soul is not, doesn't make it, it is eaten by Emmet, from which it gets submerged, of course, in the triple darkness from where it doesn't exist anymore. Now, let me go back to Daho Nun al-Misri. It's believed that according to Arabic writers, but al-Saudi, that Daho Nun al-Misri knew about the hieroglyphs. Now, this is, of course, controversial because people think Champollion is the person who deciphered the hieroglyphs. And for all accorded purposes, we'll just say Champollion is probably the official he officially deciphered the hieroglyphs, but it's believed that Al-Misri may have known a little bit about the hieroglyphs from his times as being an ascetic, living amongst the Coptic Christians, studying the Hermetic text, and eventually finding the meanings of a lot of the, the hieroglyphs and being able to sound out the consonants and deciphering it and providing the linguistic work for later scholars. And I believe this deserves much more consideration. The problem is, however, 
is there's a big gulf between Egyptologists, Egyptian Egyptologists, people who can read Arabic and have interest in Egyptology, because a lot of the Egyptians themselves and a lot of people that are in the Arab world, they see the ancient Egyptians as being infidels. They see them as you know, the jahiliya, means the ignorance. They don't see Egyptians as being, they do re respect them. There are like quotes, of course, by the prophet Muhammad talking about Mariam the Coop, talking about how they want to honor not both the modern day Egyptians and honor the ancient Egyptians. They talk about Hermes and they talk about how Hermes is, they identify him with Toth or Tahuti. They see them as like this fountain of wisdom and this fountain of mysticism. But a lot of, like I said, a lot of the modern day people, they don't think that there was any kind of curiosity when it came to medieval Egypt to ancient Egypt. They think there's just no continuity between the two. And I think this is a sort of a problem with a lot of, with a lot of like connections between the two. And this is like the study and research of Daho Nun Al-Misri is like kind of an important, not only is he kind of seen one of the earliest Sufis in Egypt, but he's also seen as a person that is of major importance to Egyptologists because he could have provided the early rudimentary understanding of the hieroglyphs on the wall, going beyond the mystical understandings of hieroglyphs. So I think this is something that deserves consideration. It's also something I'm considering looking further into. And you can look, definitely look forward to that as I'm really seriously going to pursue that understanding this link between all these different layers in Egypt and understanding more about his life. But even if it means I have to learn Arabic mm. to, to uncover a lot of this, because this is like new territory that a lot of people have, are not looking into. And I'm wondering to myself, it was talked to a little bit in Egyptological circles, like back in 2008, but now it's silence. If no one is talking about this, it's, there's been kind of a, there's been kind of a, there's this kind of a silence on any of the subject, but there's not a lot known about his life other than he was an ascetic. He traveled around to Syria and Iraq. He interacted with like people like Ibn Arabi and uh, Idris Shah and a lot of these other people that were prominent during the, uh, during the Islamic times. He interacted with them. He just didn't leave a lot of records, unfortunately. And the only like thing we can accredit him to is potentially knowing hieroglyphs also coming up with the concept of gnosis in Sufism. And uh, just one, let me take a sip on it. Yeah. And while you do that, I was going to ask you if we could go back really briefly to the board games you mentioned, the Setna or Sena. And the Mehen. And the Mehen. Okay. Yeah. I didn't look that one up. I forgot that one, but. Uh, M-E-A-M-E-H-E-N. Well, I found a picture of the Senet and it's kind of reminiscent of a chess board almost yes. or a checkerboard. And yes. there's 30, 30 squares in a sort of 10 by 3 arrangement. And they go like in a zigzag pattern, 1 through 30. Once you get from left to right, you go down one and then continue from right to left in the middle mm -hmm. and then go. So it's kind of interesting that the only real explanation here listed is that this, as you said, reflected the concept of the Ka passing through the Duat or your soul passing through. And I wonder, considering the 
vast evolution of games now. I mean, for, we're well beyond the board game. We're almost, I don't know, augmenting our own reality to become yes. games. If you look at Pokemon Go as an example, or maybe even the metaverse as another example. But what do you think of the, like, the concept of this game and magic and how that has, I don't know, made its way into modern culture. I think that's fascinating that the Egyptians, from the beginning, these little games that most people just considered a piece of entertainment with no real intellectual value aside from maybe Scrabble or whatever, most people would assume, oh yeah, the games, they're just meant to pass time. Even saying that, there's irony to it based on what how the Egyptians saw this, which was more of a metaphysical and analogy, right? Yes. It was analogous to the journey of the soul into the underworld in union with Usar or to Ra or Atun. They saw this as really honestly, the Egyptians, like I mentioned previously, they didn't perceive reality in the same way that we do. They saw everything as a continuation. Everything was con continuity. It was a continuity, meaning that life, death, all this was like kind of a full circle of, of interaction. Like the dead interacted with the ancient Egyptians, the, the outer realm. They knew that somebody definitely, when they died or when they transcended their life, they knew that they were going to another plane, but they didn't see it as like kind of a place where it ended. They saw it as a continuation and they called this the field of Aru or the field of the rushes. But yes, their conception of reality, I think, goes back to Hika, that I mentioned about magic is that everything to the ancient Egyptians was considered to be as one magic, the deities, the God, uh, the, be the being and personhood were all considered kind of a continuity and one. They were all interchanged as one and they didn't differentiate in reality the way that we do in the modern world. They were very much enchanted and they understood the uh, corporeal and the non-corporeal components of the world, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Now... Were these at all connected to, because it, it says on Wikipedia that they're not sure how to play these games now. The no, rules, they're, they're not. The rules are have not been preserved. But are there any books, such as the Book of Thoth, which is in your notes here, uh, yes, that sir. kind of elucidate on what was going on with let, let a me, lot of these rituals me, and practices? Let me actually talk about, no, I don't think the Book of Thoth or Tehuti actually talks about Senate all that much. So I don't think there's like any written rules that I know of about Senate or Mehin, other than I, I suppose you could say the speculation because it is like in the tombs and it does seem there are like these little piece and sticks that they found with both Mehin and Senate that sort of convey a certain, certain pattern that they were used with them. So they, we do know that they were kind of probably placed on the squares and they rep they like mimic and replicate the pathway of the soul and the tomb and the union of the ba and the ka of the uh, and the union of the soul. But we don't know that much in depth about the about either one, either game. So I don't know of anything in particular in ancient. I'm pretty sure there is. I don't know of any in particular. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something I definitely want to explore further. There certainly Absolutely. seems to be a lot of overlap between metaphysics and reality and gaming and yeah all of that but uh, definitely their conception of reality is like something that like i said egypt is more than just pyramids and 
the Sphinx and a lot of what people take it for granted, what it entails. There's a lot more to Egypt than just that. There's a lot more than Egypt than just they were an empire and just that they are a fascination to the modern day world. They're a lot more than a political token that people like to use in modern day discourse. They're, they deserve much more attention and they deserve more recognition for other attributes than just being a political football and for being just a, an oddity or like a, something that is like people have a curiosity. At. Right. Well, and that's something that I've learned about through my research into skull and bones of this period of Egyptomania, where in one sense, Napoleon's expedition sort of validated the complexity and the intelligence of the Egyptians going all the way back to ancient times at a time when, as we discussed earlier, there are a lot of racist notions about the differences in human beings and they were trying to differentiate, oh, well, maybe this race means that this person's from this historical explanation or this biblical explanation. But this period, at the same time that we realize, oh, no, these Egyptians were very complex. They're, they were also taking mummies and unwrapping them at parties. <laughs> and, and eating them. Yeah. Well, I think I'd heard of that, but that was not <laughs> on my mind when I brought this up. Hold on. Now. They were, though. They were eating them. Yeah. Tell me more about that, because I think that has come up before. I think my friend Roman was looking into that at one point in time. But go ahead. Tell us. Well, they believe that mummies were kind of a, they were kind of a medicine. They believe they were a medicine that could be used to cure certain ailments. So, yes. They would often take mummies and grind them up and actually put them in paste and affix them to, to certain ailments and even sometimes eat them because they believed it had medicinal properties. And so, yeah, they did. They actually did eat mummies. That was a thing during a Victorian times, I believe. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, there's a lot to Egypt that, that a lot of people care to discuss. Well, and today we've gone over quite a lot. I think maybe this is a good time to wrap up and I'd love to have you back on very soon to continue this because you gave me tons of notes and I don't know that we've covered nearly 10, 20% of them, but... I, I tried my best, man. No, this is best. great. This has been great. So wrapping up a few threads here, we kind of discussed how the Sufi religion, the Sufi way of Dohal, life Dohal kind Dohal of... Noon. The whole noon mystery this was considered. Go ahead. Well, I'm sure just to sum summarize what you're saying, Sufism originates in Egypt, correct? Allegedly, yes. Most people typically give Sufism as originating in Iran. That's usually like the or considered the birthplace of Sufism. But there's a lot of like evidence to show that during this time period when Sufism started to started to gain a foothold in the Islamic world in Egypt, there were like folk customs there. And there also was Dahod Nun, a mystery that conceptualized sort of the stations and gnosis of, of oneness with Allah and oneness with God, because that's kind of what Sufism is. It's breaking past sort of the doctrine saying that you don't need to have total understanding of the Quran, even though they do adhere to the Quran and they are, uh, they do practice the same as like a Sunnah or Shia Muslim or Orthodox Muslim, but saying that everything emanate, everything is part of Allah and to be one with Allah, that's the concept. So yes, I think it would have been very much 
uh, at home in like medieval Egypt and very much within the text of Hermeticism and alchemy that was still popular in parts where the Hanun El Misri was, was at. But yes, he's probably one of the founders of Sufism, although it's hotly contested by a lot of different scholars. Mm. Yeah, it's really complicated, this topic, and definitely full of potential to trigger certain audiences. I think we are best looking at history with an open, unbiased mind. That's where you can gleam the most truth, really, is when yeah. you look at things from that place. But uh, wrapping up here, I mean, when it comes to this sort of contentious subject today, I mean, obviously, most of the world knows Egypt for the pyramids and a lot of, I don't know, the armchair <laughs> speculators are mm -hmm. saying things like, oh, well, the aliens built all of these things. I mean, can we speak to that for a moment and why it is important to understand the history of Egypt and maybe that can give us a better perspective on these structures? I mean, what are your thoughts on how the pyramids even fit into all of this? Do you think that the, what the Egyptians say about kind of inheriting these from someone much, much older? Do you think there's truth in that? I mean, I had a person on the podcast very recently, a gentleman named Chris Leons, who spent, or he's an archaeologist, or spent time in Egypt, and he kind of gave me the status quo mainstream explanation that the ziggurats gave way to the pyramids that we see now, and then other dynasties tried to copy that and failed. What are your thoughts on all of this as someone who spent a lot of time researching maybe a different side of Egypt than the sort of archaeological, architectural approach that a lot take? Now, I have a bit of a bias towards, and I'm probably like the wrong person to ask on this subject. I tend to favor history from the perspective of the commoner the perspective of the the people as opposed to looking at history as like a, a macro event. So I see Egypt as a regional kind of development that came from northern Af northeastern Africa itself and a lot of the inspiration for stuff like the pyramids, the antecedents of the pyramids, I see it in like the bin stone, I see it in the primordial mound, I see it through the creation through that and maybe that is flawed on my part. There definitely is room for understanding that there may, <clears throat> excuse me, there may have been like some divine source or maybe as people call the guardians or uh, the Nephilim or whatever you want to call them. There may have been like intervention from like these types of entities. That's definitely, and even not the theurgy where they called down upon these certain like deities and these deities were type of the archetypes or their types of uh, types of deities that, that represented another ultra terrestrial or whatever. It's possible. I mean, I don't rule that out because Egypt proper itself, there's so many myths and legends about people living underground, people having sisters and brothers underground talking about, because as a matter of fact, when I looked into re Egypt, it reminded me a lot of when people talk about the hollow earth, and I hate to bring this up, but Vril and stuff like that, it reminded me a lot of that when they talked about angels living in, submerged around the earth, because a lot of the Egyptian peasants 
and I don't want to use the term peasants, but Fela'in, they believe that there are like uh, supernatural beings underneath the earth and they communicate with them and they're a part of their spirituality. So I don't rule that out. That's a very, that's very much a possibility that that's possible. I just want to see the evidence that shows the progression of, of the Mastabas being the ziggurats other than just they sort of look similar because there is like a progression of the pyramid formation until they get a perfected form. And the pyramid has like such a spiritual significance to the Egyptian cosmology that I'm more inclined to believe it came from, it wasn't an import. It was something that was native to the Egyptian soil, but that's just my belief. Well, and that's why I asked. I don't think you're the wrong person for the question at all because, yeah, I mean, it's important to get everyone's perspective. And you're, like I kind of hinted at, you're coming at this culture and this topic from a different perspective than most. I think most people, unfortunately, think of those things I mentioned before when they think of Egypt. They think, oh, the pyramids, they must have been built by aliens. And I mean, hey, I'm guilty. I've indulged in those conversations here on this podcast dozens of times. I mean, there are people that I'd like to have back on that have those sorts of thoughts. I don't necessarily think that there's room for only one. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of all truth, as you said. Maybe these beings that the Egyptians are still communing with in some ways at least through their legends at the very least Mm -hmm. maybe they're responsible there's tons of examples of this type of architecture around the world i think maybe there's a possibility that these beings are not just local to egypt maybe they express themselves in other places and inspire other people to do similar things as to what the egyptians did right so we just have one of the greatest i guess historical records that you think that's mostly due to the environment that things are preserved longer here than most other places right i mean you don't have a jungle swallowing things up you don't have a lot of storms maybe aside from sandstorms that's true that the desert is probably one of the best preservers of papyri and various different texts that the egyptians wrote and also the fact they wrote on walls but i think also you know going back to at least like the 19th dynasty which i wanted to cover this and maybe next time i'll cover this if you invite me back on is there was a concerted effort in Egyptians themselves, going back to the Ramesses II, there was a guy named Kaim Awaset that actually started the first preservation of Egyptian antiquities. And you, of course, have Manetho, and you have other people that during the Greco-Roman time, there already was this grandeur and this amazing civilization that was right at the footsteps of the Romans and the Greeks themselves to where I think people wrote about these temples. They tried to preserve these temples, including the Arabs during the Islamic period. So there has been like a consorted effort by people as well that Westerners too, I won't exclude Westerners, even though they had quite a bias on Egyptian civilization, but you'd have all these different people that wanted to preserve Egypt's legacy. So I think that provided a purview into Egypt that we don't get with a lot of other different civilizations. And the fact they were like so literate and they just preserved all these different records and they did show interest in their own history, at least starting towards the late New Kingdom period. So I think that's probably why. Right on. 
Yeah, there, there's a lot to get into here. So I certainly will be inviting you back on. You're the host of a podcast called Doom Mento Mori, which is linked in the description. Tell folks more about that and what they can expect to find when they follow up with you. Okay. I first want to make an apology that I have kind of neglected my podcast due to other affairs that I've had to take care of in the real world. And I'm sorry about that, but there are two interviews that I've done thus far. One with David Thibodeau, who was a Waco survivor. And the other one I believe is with a guy that investigates the whole Helter Skelter affair with Charles Manson and Sharon Tate. Basically what my podcast was about, and I'm planning on working on it further, is about studying apocalypticism, studying the notion about the apocalypse how it interfaces in it with the modern day world and the formations of cults and how people are just stuck on this notion about apocalypticism and millenarianism. So you can expect to see a lot of those types of topics on my podcast. And again, I apologize for being rather hasty about putting up episodes, but like I said, I've been very busy like doing other involving like real world stuff I got to do. Cause unfortunately this doesn't pay the bills right now, but eventually maybe someday it will, but that's pretty much it. Like I said, this is kind of a passion of mine too. I really am fascinated by apocalyptic cultures and how that people are changed by it. Now religions and conceptions, theological conceptions are formed around it and how cults are formed around it. And that's, but I don't want to give people the idea that, it's all doom and gloom because I do research other topics that are rather more cheery than just the namesake, Demento Mori. I just thought it was kind of a catchy name that applied to my podcast. And it was interesting, unique, and it wasn't, it wasn't used by people. And I, that's pretty much it. And it, it also goes along with the Ouroboros itself. I love it. Yeah, I think that there is a there's definitely a bright side to all, understanding all of this. I mean, even if you're looking into things that have a certain dark or morose quality, there's tons of people who benefit a great deal from exploring that side of their life and finding, I don't know, a balance, right? It depends. We all come from different walks, but I appreciate your perspective, Doc, and I hope people tune in so that this passion goes further and maybe you can quit your day job and pursue this full time. <laughs> That'd be amazing, right? So That would be. Thank you for bringing me on, Mark. I, I do appreciate this. It's been, it's been awesome, man. Yeah, likewise, I really appreciate you having all of this prepared, and I wish I was a little more prepared. But Oh, it's all good, man. It's all good. But we will do this again very soon because I want to follow up and have some better questions and really dive into this subject. And now that I have these notes here, too, I'll certainly be able to do that. But I think we covered a lot of ground today. And yeah, listeners, please support Doc and follow up with his podcast and send me some questions if you have any that we can ask Doc those questions on the second go around. So, And maybe I can invite you someday on my stream to talk about about millennialism and apocalypticism. I'm pretty sure you've got some interesting insight into that. Yeah, please. Let's do it. Let's do it. So with that, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now.
All right, and that was our conversation with the great Dr. Doc Inferno. And I'm excited to dive deeper into the world of Egypt, Egyptian history, Egyptian mysteries, Egyptian misnomers, and Egyptian cover-ups. I mean, even to this day, people talk about the government of Egypt keeping certain things secret, and only certain archaeologists are allowed to go to certain places, and so on and so forth. So there's so many enigmas, if I can use that word so many times, with Egypt. So it's good to have a friend in Doc Inferno to be able to go and look into all this stuff. Of course, I cannot credit my friend Steven Snyder enough. He's such a great guy introducing me to not just the Doc, J.J. Vance... Paul Stobbs and many others Uh, that's one of the benefits of having uh, friends who also have great podcasts Uh, speaking of a great podcast my friend Juan from the Juan on Juan podcast recently put me in touch with another gentleman who was an associate of Manly P. Hall so you can look forward to another episode uh, very soon this week uh, with a gentleman who published parts of the secret teachings of all ages that didn't make it to print so you'll learn all about that very soon sign up on the patreon to hear that episode i'm going to be putting that episode out uh a couple days earlier hopefully on rockfin and if i could edit the audio and whatnot which i probably will because i'm doing this episode a few days ahead as well so yeah Hopefully we get uh, that episode on the Patreon soon and I'll put some trailers out and drum up some support because we want to get to 25, sorry, 250. It'd be nice to get to 2,500, but 250 patrons. Uh, And that is our goal. Once we do that, we're going to be doing in-person interviews, uh, video. It's going to be a great thing. I think it's going to change the nature of the podcast in a good way. We're still going to stick with our audio format for the RSS feed, but I want to do video interviews in person, in nature, with very interesting people who would not normally sit down at a computer to do a podcast. You know, that's one of the things with podcasting is we are limited to people, to interviewing people who have the resources to podcast. Uh, So that is one small hang up i guess there's tons of people out there who for whatever reason just aren't able to connect with us over zoom i have done a few episodes uh over the phone which is nice but we just never get good connection on the phone um it's just never as good as it could be so if we were in person there'd be no reason to rely on any frequencies connections signals yada 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 we can just put some microphones in the hand of whoever we're interviewing Uh, put a microphone in my hand and turn a camera on we don't even need wi-fi to do that so i'm looking forward to that that is a goal we are setting if you want to help accomplish that goal sign up on the patreon sign up on the Substack. oh i gotta turn that off sorry about that that was my phone not yours so we're gonna we gotta sign up on the Patreon, on the Substack to accomplish that goal, or you can send us a one-time donation on Ko-Fi. But pretty soon, after summer's over, I'm going to be doing 
four bonus episodes a month for patron subsec and rockfin supporters only that's right we're going to be doing four additional episodes a month so instead of getting three free episodes a week you're going to get two free episodes a week which shouldn't be a problem for the freeloaders because i was giving out two episodes a week for a while and that seems to be what most people enjoy Uh, you know two episodes a week is enough to i guess remember that this podcast exists and listen to it again uh maybe you like it and you want to keep listening i hope you do i like it i like doing the podcast so and we're doing really well we've been in the top 20 in the united states in the philosophy category for almost half a year now consistently so i i'm i'm proud of that if you want to help with that give us a five star rating and review uh those are very helpful that helps new people find the show and it also helps us stay up in the the charts so but let me read some of our most recent five star reviews because we got a few in the past month so first oh first review i'm not going to read because it's only four stars thank you for the nice comments dj but uh you gotta give me five stars if you want me to read it all right great podcast so easy to listen to five stars i've been listening to the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast for a few months now and i'm loving it i listen to a lot of podcasts on these subjects and i have a few regular go-to shows i follow this is now one of them fortunately for us mark is a busy boy putting out regular content so you don't have to wait for a long for a fresh show that's right i was just talking about that we need that um, lots of great guests, some of whom I'm already familiar with, and lots of content new to me, which is cool. I guess this main thing for me is Mark's style. Wow, thank you. I appreciate that. Considering the nature of the content, this is a rare treat. It's just so easy to listen to. Nice one, Mark. That's from Kaz Art in Great Britain. Shout out to all of our English listeners. Shout out to Mr. Traumatic out in Wales and his fan base. He's a cool dude. Uh, Recently used some of his music on the show after he put out an album by the same name as this podcast. So we worked out a little arrangement there. Now you guys get to hear his drum and bass music on the podcast. Uh, One of the best podcasts around. Five stars. Love the show and Esoteric America. Keep up the great work. That's from Packer Riot. Ridge <laughs> from the United States of America okay sure um, thank you Packerarish. I appreciate that and Esoteric America will be back folks don't worry don't be dismayed we haven't put out a few episodes in a while so uh, just uh, we put out very few episodes in a while rather so just stay tuned we'll be back with that and then uh, the last review that we're going to read. Uh, wow. Five stars. Mark, my old review still stands strong, but I had to say something about the audio quality. Uh, mostly the volume of your last guest was not the best. Turn up the volume. Mark is an amazing orator, and his guest brings so much knowledge and information to the table. I love hearing these conversations. That's from Yeah, I Did via Apple Podcasts, United States of America. Cool. Yeah, I did that. I... Uh, I took that comment and I 
listen to it and i'm very sorry about those episodes some of the audio wasn't great and it wasn't the guest's fault um i didn't have my channel volume up high enough so i fixed that and i've been very um wary about that when i'm recording i've been monitoring that when i'm recording just to double check because sometimes you know i'm just so excited to talk to these people that i forget little silly things like that and that ends up pissing a lot of people off so sorry about that and that's all for the reviews shout out to everybody leaving reviews i appreciate all of you if you leave a five-star rating and review i will read it here on the podcast send us a one-time donation and i will uh, give you a shout out like this person who sent us a one-time donation via paypal uh, hazel mandala and they are also in the uh, telegram chat so shout out to them i appreciate the support helping us get one step closer to that goal of doing in-person interviews so I also need to give a shout out to our sponsor, The Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. That's right. Hit up my man Garrett at The Hit Kit and pick up a Hit Kit. It's the best way to keep all of what you're smoking on safe and sound. Spliffs, joints, blunts, whatever it is you're smoking, throw it in The Hit Kit right there next to your lighter and you'll never lose your stash again, okay? You won't lose your lighter and you won't reach into your pocket to find a weed salad pick up a hit kit use the promo code crazy at checkout and save 15% off maybe we'll get 20% off if the payment processors would stop being so biased against us stoners uh, they just they don't support any drug companies so uh, but they do support big pharma go figure uh, but anyways Let's all give a big shout out to Garrett at the Hit Kit. He rules. What's up? Thank you, brother, for doing what you do. You are American made. We need more small businesses like you fighting the good fight, fighting these big corporations who are lying to us and selling us cheap, shitty products that half the time end up having all kinds of side effects. And I'm not just talking about medicine. Today, I was putting together a... Uh, cabinet for shoes and there's a sticker on it that said products used in the manufacturing process of this product may cause cancer what the hell a goddamn shoe rack might kill me i don't know what's going on in this world that's why we need to support american-made local small shops mom and pops get all your stuff from people like garrett you know that's the way to go. Anyways, uh, until next time, folks, thank you so much for listening and tuning into this episode with the Doc Inferno. Check out his podcast and uh, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Imagine having to wake up every day knowing you are living a lie, but having to somehow pretend and go along with it. Imagine playing this game of make-believe simply because you think and feel you have no other choice. You feel trapped and helpless. Nothing is really changing. In fact, it's getting worse. For fuck's sake, wow. the world's getting worse. Uh. 
If I kill myself, I'll write a letter first fuck off. I'm only joking, I'll just write a better verse ah. But fuck social media and fuck the metaverse ah. They want your consciousness to make it digital You need to open up your mind and don't be cynical Virtual reality is making people miserable But everybody needs to be a bit more spiritual Wake up. Everybody needs to be a bit more quiet I'm done with the bullshit, blood I'm really tired, yeah, I'm tired. There's no point in a protest or riot no, If you wanna change yourself then change your diet and if you wanna change, do it for yourself yeah. Not for no one else, you don't need no one's help Cause if you wanna change, do it for yourself Don't do it for your ego, do it for your health oh. The knowledge that I'm giving you is so divine. divine The wisdom in my mind is feeling so sublime Blind. If you wear a mask, you need to grow a spine uh. I'm seeing GMO human beings all the time GMO. I'm feeling EMF frequencies everywhere In my city, 5G towers, I see many there no one seems to understand, no one ever cares No one's on my wavelength, it's very rare We live inside a holographic simulation They're controlling you through fear and intimidation They control you with the TV and the media Their understanding of technology is way superior They're into transhumanism They're transforming humans and that's the new religion Artificial intelligence is too forbidden You need to go inside and meditate, the truth is hidden Waking up one day and realizing that the world you find yourself in is built on an illusion. Imagine realizing that everything you thought to be sacred and true turns out to be false. The systems, establishments and authorities you trusted in turned out to be built on deceptions meant to mentally and emotionally enslave you. Imagine having to deal with that realization, then trying to share what you have discovered with those closest to you, only to be mocked, ridiculed, and labeled as crazy. At first, all you can do is inspire others, complain or protest on the internet, but it seems hardly anyone is paying attention. Most of your friends and family distance themselves from you. You become the weird one in all your social circles. It's a lonely and depressing path you walk. But you choose to keep walking, for there is no going back. You simply cannot unknow what you now know. Then, one day, something beautiful happens. A real solution appears like a rainbow in the middle of a storm. Realize that you cannot fix the problem whilst you are inside the problem. You realize that you playing along is the problem. The greatest act of revolution is simply to say no and walk away. You quit that money-grinding lifestyle. You quit that rent and mortgage lifestyle. You quit that bill-chasing lifestyle. You quit giving most of your energy away to a system that does not serve your well-being. You leave the matrix and decide to go off-grid. You find a plot of land, co-create a self-sufficient community and begin the process of learning how to live a self-sustainable lifestyle. Once you taste true freedom, you can never be a slave again. Being free, sovereign, independent and self-sufficient, self-determined is so much more soul-fulfilling and purposeful. Your sole purpose in life becomes a mission to inspire as many other like-minded people to do the same. Break free from the systems 
that don't serve their well-being and start new cooperatives that do, communities that work in common unity. You are finally being the change you wish to see.